God, you are worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. And we live for you, God. And during this time, I pray that our minds, our hearts be set on you. Um, may, may my brothers and sisters here be able to hear, see past me and hear from you and whatever it is that you have prepared for them this morning. Be with us in our time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so for some of you, I think many of you, uh, or at least some of you, uh, I think are aware that I was, I was born here in the great country that is America, but from the ages of 9 to 16, I lived in Korea, and after returning to America, uh, and as I got older and started to, I started to recognize the use of the words such as rights, constitutional rights, God-given rights, human rights, and so forth. And when I was younger, I didn't quite understand like what this obsession or the crying out for um, all the different rights that I would hear from my peers. Um, while I was in Korea, this it wasn't something that was really taught or reinforced at home or in the schools. And so I don't think I really had a, a grasp or, or, or even a conscious of, of what that is. Um, I remember first learning about the poverty in North Korea and, and you know, feeling bad for the, for the starving children. But it wasn't until when I moved back to the States that I learned that you know, the mistreatment of people in this country was, was a human rights issue. Like, I don't think I really realized that until it was made known to me. And I don't think it was until a few, just a few years ago that I started to get a grasp of what I think it is that many Americans are fighting for when they talk about their rights and what it is that is, why is it it is so important to them, right? Just this past year, with COVID, you know, the civil unrest following the death of George Floyd, and of course, the lovely God-glorifying election cycle that it seems that, that we are still going through. There's been no shortage of media coverage, debates, conversations over what our rights are and how they have been either protected or violated. Now, for the church, there's a separate conversation, right? So there's one, on one side, the conversation over, you know, what the church as a religious institution has the right to do in this country. But then there's also the question within the church regarding, you know, what, what a Christian is allowed to do. Um, you know, what are their rights or what are their Christian liberties? And when it comes to these rights, freedom or liberties, it, it can be challenging to navigate through what people often call the, the gray areas, right? So these are the things that the Bible doesn't seem to, at least it doesn't seem like the Bible explicitly or implicitly addresses, or it's not considered to be a sin, but in some ways it can still be like on a spectrum or, or a scale. So the consumption of alcohol, 
for example, is, is something that is frequently brought up when it comes to gray areas. And so, you know, should or shouldn't a Christian drink? How much should they drink? Where can they drink? What type of alcohol is permissible? Um, and then so forth. And you would see Christians who would call each other brothers and sisters in Christ coming to different conclusions. And, you know, the, the use of alcohol is just one of many, many examples of how Christian liberties are exercised. Am I doing too much? Am I doing too little? What am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? What is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do? But I wonder if we are asking, if we're even asking the right questions. I wonder if we're not focusing on the right things. Maybe the Bible does make things clearer than we think. Maybe things are a little more black and white than gray. So this morning, we're going to continue in our series in 1 Corinthians and actually kind of closing up in this mini-series where we focus on Christian liberties in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And in our text today, we'll see how our brother Paul, giving us very practical examples through which we can draw two. We can draw two guiding principles in the form of a question when it comes to exercising our Christian liberties. And so one... Is it for your own good or for the good of others? And two, is it done to the glory of God? So is it for your own good or for the good of others? And is it done for the glory of God? And by answering these two questions, I believe we can draw out our big idea or the main idea for today, which is be a people pleaser to the glory of God. Be a people pleaser to the glory of God. So our first question, the first question is, is it for your own good or the good of others? Are you seeking your own good or the good of others? And throughout our passage, we see Paul making the distinction between doing something for oneself or doing it for others. So in verse 24, it's his own good versus good of his neighbor. In verse 29, it says, not your conscience, but his conscience. Verse 33, one's own advantage versus the advantage of many. And in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Paul really couldn't have been any clearer regarding his concerns for the church in Corinth and that their focus was on self and not on others when it came to exercising their Christian liberties. Right? So they were prioritizing themselves, their own lives, before considering how those decisions may affect those around them. So in verse 24, Paul says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, I'll admit, I will personally admit, this sounds a lot simpler and easier than it actually is. And then given the length, right, over three chapters, given the length that Paul goes to address this abuse of Christian liberties, we have to pay attention to what it is that Paul is trying to say. And as we are talking about, you know, we're addressing this, this notion of seeking the good of others over our own, can I take a brief moment to talk about self-care? Self-care? Now, before you completely check out because you're afraid or maybe you already disagree with what I'm about to say before you even heard what I've said, I firmly believe resting is biblical. I believe that health is 
very important, and God does not God does want us to take good care of our bodies. I also believe God wants us to enjoy our lives on this earth as long as He has us here. And just to be clear, I'm not even poo-pooing all of what people would consider as forms of self-care. And if you agree with me up to this point, I would hope that you can continue to hear me out with what I'm about to say. I think there are many ways that the Bible talks about how we can be cared for. And there is absolutely nothing inherently wrong or sinful about doing things that are enjoyable, relaxing. However, I think and I, I, I believe it can be problematic when it is demanded, when it's required, when it becomes a non-negotiable, or when it is a right. And so when people say that they must love themselves before they can love others, so they must do X, Y, and Z, or that because they rarely do anything for themselves that they got to do this or do that. When people say such things, I think they are treading very dangerous waters. I find that the Bible talking a lot more about denying oneself, sacrifice, and as we see in our text, being about seeking the good of others before our own, more than pleasing, satisfying ourselves. Now let me say this again. I think there are so many ways I believe, I firmly believe that God gave us to enjoy, including meat, including meat as the church in Corinth was struggling with. So the point I'm trying to make is when we pursue self-care for the sake of self-care, I'm not sure how we can make a biblical case for that. To those who are weary and are in need of rest and relief from its stress, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To those who are anxious and are in need of peace for all its fears, Jesus says, do not be anxious about anything. May we not be so quick to seek out for physical, mental, emotional, or even spiritual needs to be met through outside sources, all great things. But as we seek the good of others over our own, may we run to the Father first and find the peace, rest, and strength in Him. So going back to our text in verse 24, Paul writes, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Verse 24 actually gives us some more clarity to verse 23. That says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And we've seen this phrase, all things are lawful, previously in chapter 6, when Paul was uh, addressing the issue of sexual immorality. And commentators suggest that this phrase, all things are lawful, may have been a quote that was widely used in Corinth during that time. And, and the Christians here were using it as an excuse to... Um, to using it as an excuse to immoral behavior. So they were saying that, right, because we are free in Christ, they had now had the liberty to do anything as their heart desired, which included acts of sexual immorality and participating in idol worship, which is why, as we saw last week, 
they had to be reminded of the severity and the consequences of their idolatry. And as we've seen, Paul, to some extent, agree with what they're saying, especially when it came to eating foods offered to idols. So yeah, Paul would say, you're right, it is lawful. It is permissible, and you have the right to do such things. But Paul here is very clear in giving the qualifiers to their freedom. He points out that not all things done under this mantra of all things are lawful are helpful or build up. In other words, Paul is summing up in verse 24, we must ask ourselves, in the act of exercising your right for your own, is the act of exercising your right for your own good or for the good of others? Others being your brothers and sisters in Christ, your church, your family members and friends, neighbors, co-workers. Now we're going to continue to address this issue of what it means to not seek one's own good but the good of others. But I think it's important that we briefly touch upon what our rights are. What are rights anyway? What are, what are rights? What does it mean to have the right to do something? According to... To Merriam-Webster, a right is the power or authority to which one is justly entitled. The power or authority to which one is justly entitled. So here in America, one has the right to free speech, a fair trial, to vote. All things that are protected by the Constitution. Now, the Greek word here translated in the ESV as being lawful, or in the NIV, you know, being uh, the right it means to be authorized for the doing of something, that something is permitted or that it is proper. Now, if you think about your rights, you, you know, fill in the blank, whatever right that comes to mind, according to the definition of what a right is, you have to then consider who or what institution is it that determines that power or authority as being just. Where do you get the entitlement? Because we can't just claim a right or a freedom or liberty out of thin air. There is no right in and of itself. So here in America, your constitutional rights are authorized and protected by the Constitution, right? The government. So that makes sense. But as Christians, when we claim the right to do something, we have to ask ourselves, who gives me the power or authority? Or as I've been calling these rights as Christian freedom or as Christian liberties, what am I free from? Freedom is not abstract, right? There is no such thing as being free just to be free. When someone is free, there is a sense of direction. So it is implied that once you become free from something, you are then under the, you submit under some other authority, you are bonded to something else. And we, as we know, we are all worshiping beings, which means we at all times are submitted to the lordship of something or someone else. So for those of us who claim Jesus Christ, not just as our Savior, but also as our Lord and King, we were not made free to do whatever we desire to do. We were not given uh, some sort of a jail-free card to do whatever you want to do without consequences. We learned about consequences last week. Rather than simply being free, 
We went from being in bondage to sin to becoming bondservants of Christ. We've been given a new set of laws. It doesn't mean that we don't have laws. We have a new set of laws. And for us, there's a set of two commandments. And what are they? To love God, to love people. That is what is lawful. That is what we are free to do. That is what we have the authority to do. We must seek the good of not our own, but the good of others. So let's go back to verse 23 where it says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. What does it mean to be helpful and to build up? I think those two words can be summed up as edification. right? And I think God makes it very, very clear in his word that he cares a lot about edification and the building up of his people. We're going to see later in chapter 14, later in, 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 the, in the letter, verse 26, where he's, What then, brothers? When we come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Ephesians 4.29 let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Can't hear that one enough. But only such as is good for building up. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. We can go on and on and on. And as Pastor John MacArthur puts it, quote, edification is a very vital word. It comes from the Greek word oikodomeo, which literally means to build a house. What is going to build up? Figuratively, metaphorically, it means spiritual growth. This is the issue. Everything that I do, everything that you do as a Christian is to be to the end that we are built up. So regarding some right or freedom or a decision that you have to make, and maybe it is your personal use of alcohol, you may be right. You may even have the correct knowledge and theological understanding that there is nothing inherently wrong with or sinful about having an alcoholic beverage. But in exercising your rights, are you mindful when you're in the presence of a non-believer or someone who may be immature or weak in the faith? Are you being mindful of, are you considering them? how it may affect them. And knowing that some of them may possibly, or maybe you do know that, they believe that, that drinking is a sin, even if it's not, is it worth it in that moment to put your foot down and to exercise your rights? Is that helpful? Does it build up? Is it for the sake of spiritual growth? Now, I'm not passively saying that one should completely abstain. I'm really not. I'm just saying, I think it's important that we do ask ourselves and we don't stop asking ourselves, are my actions helpful and beneficial to others or are they for my own good? The work seek, where it says, let no one seek his own good, it means to devote serious effort to realize one's desire or objective. So, brothers and sisters, may we be very, very serious in our devotion to helping and building up our fellow brothers and sisters to be people pleasers to the glory of God. 
Now, verses 25 to 30, Paul gives us very practical examples and scenarios to which how Christian liberties must be applied to, and that they're not just for the licentious, but also to the legalistic. So what are the two scenarios? Well, one is when you're eating in the privacy of your own home. When you're eating this meat in the privacy of your own home, you can eat it without having to ask any questions, wondering if the meat was free from idolatrous contamination. Now, if you're invited to dinner by a non-believer, this is the other scenario, it gets a little more complicated. So if you're invited, they serve meat, then, as you would have in the, own, in the privacy of your own home, just eat the meat, don't ask questions where the meat came from. But the caveat here is, if someone does point out that this meat was offered to idols, and this person may very much so be a, a fellow believer, then it says to not eat it. I don't know if you noticed, but if you're following us in our text, I didn't use the word conscience and explaining and kind of and um, kind of fleshing out these two scenarios. But I believe it is worth explaining what a conscience is and to, to better understand what Paul means when he says to not seek your own good, but the good of others. Conscience, as one scholar puts it, is the, quote, inner tribunal which determines whether behavior agrees with the moral norms and requirements affirmed by the mind. Let me say that one more time. The inner so this is what a conscience is. Conscience is the inner tribunal which determines whether behavior agrees with the moral norms and the requirements affirmed by the mind. I have to, I have to like read that I don't know how many times. But to, to, to make it a little more simple, conscience is that thing, that thing from within us that checks to see if our moral norms, right, what we believe that is to be right or wrong, how those things match up with what we are doing, our actions. So it's that thing that checks, hey, this is what you think is right or wrong. Your actions, are they matching up? That is your conscience. So when Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, He's establishing that the act of eating meat offered to idols in and of itself is not sinful. So don't let that bother you. He's saying just eat it. Eat it even, you can even assume that it was meat offered to idols and you should be able to just eat it. Now regarding the second scenario, right? So first we had eating in the privacy of your home. And then the second scenario, which is when you're invited to dinner and the two separate situations within that, the first is when that status of the meat that was served at the, at the table, when we don't know what it is. Paul is saying, hey, same deal. Don't ask questions. Just eat the meat. All right, so to, in that situation, he is speaking to the legalistic Christian because by him refusing to eat the meat or raising questions to where the meat came from, you're making it unnecessarily difficult to have fellowship with non-believers. Now, in the second situation, where the status of the meat is made known, Paul is then speaking to the licentious, right? The, the one that says, hey, I can kind of do whatever I want. And he's telling him, if you insist on exercising your rights and leveraging your own freedom, not only are you potentially risking 
stumbling a non-believer who may think that a Christian accepting cultural norms is idol worship, but you're also risking of stumbling the immature or the weak believer who may think that knowingly eating food that was offered to idols is sin, and that may have lasting negative impact. So when it comes to Christian liberties, right, freedoms or rights, whatever you want to call them, they are both to be exercised for the sake of others, but also to be easily given up for the sake of others. So when we are living for the sake of others, we will do less of the things that we want to do and do more of the things that we don't want to do. We're going to come back to verse 31, the well-known verse that is 1 Corinthians 10, 31, and um, kind of coincidence, but uh, Tina got Gabby to, to memorize this verse just around the time that I started preparing for these last two sermons. And so it's, it's been a huge blessing to hear her recite 1 Corinthians 10, 10 31, and, and we'll come back to that. But let's skip to verses 32 and 33. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. We'll stop right there. So I said today's main idea was to be a people pleaser to the glory of God. So what do I mean by that? People pleaser, right? doesn't really have a nice ring to it. Typically has a pretty negative connotation, and it's not the most flattering thing to be called a pleaser, people pleaser or to even self-identify as a people pleaser. I did a quick Google search, because Google has, gives us all the answers. And I just searched people pleaser. And one of the first articles that showed up was titled, 10 Things You're a Sign of a People Pleaser. I think that was what it's called. And so according to this article, you may be a people pleaser if you, one, pretend to agree with everyone, two, you feel responsible for how other people feel, three, apologize often, four, you feel the burden by the things you say, by the things you have. Five, you can't say no. Six, you need praise to feel good. Sorry, six, you feel uncomfortable if someone's angry at you. Seven, you act like the people around you. Eight, you need praise to feel good. Nine, you go great lengths to avoid conflict. And ten, you don't admit when your feelings are hurt. It's a pretty short article, and it, and it gives also like a, a, a brief explanation of how each sign or tendency can be harmful. Now, you might say, hey, that's not me, right? That doesn't apply to me. But if we are honest with ourselves, I would assume that most of us, if not all of us, to some extent have dealt with at least one or maybe a few of those tendencies. It's not the only reason, because I think there are many reasons and underlying reasons of why people may show people-pleasing tendencies. But I believe people-pleasing, right, the effort to please many is ultimately to please oneself. It's for your own good, your own benefit, your own advantage. Again, I'm not trying to point out those who are considered to be people-pleasers. Because I truly do believe that we are, in all sense, people pleasers. Because when we do things for others, not all the time, but at times, we can be at least mindful of 
or even maybe hopeful that there is some potential return or benefit from that act. Could be anything from just a good feeling for helping someone, being well-liked. Maybe it's a reputation. Maybe it is some status or financial gain. But Paul here is saying that he tries to please everyone in everything he does, not seeking his own advantage, but the advantage of many. And when he says everyone, he means everyone. Not just those he prefers to be around. Not just those he's more comfortable with, those who he agrees with on political, social, racial issues. Not just those who he understands better or that understand him. Not just those whom he shares more life experiences with. When he says everyone, pleasing everyone, he means everyone. Paul was in the business of pleasing everyone, the Jews, the Greeks, and the church of God. And he challenged the church of Corinth and he is challenging us today to do the same. Rather than focusing on exercising our own rights at the risk of stumbling others. So, so far we've talked a lot about doing good and seeking good, right? Doing things for others, seeking the good of others, or benefit, or advantage. But what is this good or benefit? Is Paul simply talking about the well-being of others in the sense that, you know, someone is in good health, financially stable, healthy relationships, support systems, and so forth? Or when he talks about giving up your Christian liberties to be helpful or to build up? Is he talking about you know, providing some type of assistance or you know, a, a, a boost to their morale? What does the end of verse 33 say? That many may be saved. That many may be saved. Pastor Charles mentioned it a few weeks ago that there are so many non-believers around us that do good work. Really good people around us. And to be honest, yeah, I think even for me personally, I'm often embarrassed when I see those who do not profess Christ outdoing me in doing good works. How selfish and self-seeking I can be. So yeah, doing things that are beneficial to others is, is very good. And we should all be challenged by our non-believing family members and friends. However, we cannot forget the fact, the ultimate good, that is, that they may be saved. That people may come to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Doing all the good that we do for our families and neighbors and coworkers, our end goal and hope must be that they may be saved. And I'm not just talking about being, knows, being known as the nice, respectful, hardworking Christian for your own reputation's sake. I'm talking about when you do whatever it is that you do, that you do it, and your heart's desire is that from that act or that gesture, that it may lead someone to Jesus or that they may grow in their knowledge of him. Let me ask you this. Are you just cordial with everyone, pleasing everyone, and just maintaining that reputation as a good person, good, respectful Christian. Going back to all the different scenarios regarding eating the meat offered to idols, 
Paul is saying, however it is that you exercise or give up your Christian freedoms in the efforts to do good to others, the end goal, the heart behind your decision has to be about being a witness. That people may grow in their, know, in, in their knowledge of Jesus and eventually come to saving faith. That's what it means to be helpful, to build up someone. That's what it means to seek the good or advantage of your neighbor. And that's what it means to give up your liberties for the sake of another person's, other person's conscience, which brings us to our second guiding principle for our Christian liberties. Verse 31. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This question is pretty self-explanatory. In your attempt to decide whether or not to exercise your right or God-given freedom, whatever you want to call it, are you concerned about and being mindful of the glory of God? Is your life about the glory of God? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do you do it to the glory of God? Christian liberties are not about what we can or cannot do. It's not about how far we can push boundaries. It's really not even about seeking the good of others just because that's the right thing to do. Everything must be to the glory of God. And, you know, verse uh, 1031 is, is often quoted to encourage Christians to, to give God the glory in, in, in the ordinary, right? In their daily routines, in the mundane parts of life. But if anything, I think it's actually the most precious things about our lives, our rights, our Christian liberties that we hold on to with dear life, the things that we cherish the most, the things and aspects of our lives that are the most difficult to give up to, to sacrifice, the things that we enjoy the most, the things that we consider to be the most vital to our well-being, even our happiness, all these things absolutely must be done to the glory of God. So with all these gray areas that we've created in our lives, I believe God makes it much more black and white for us. Is it for the good of others, and is it to the glory of God? Is it to the good of others, and is it to the glory of God? You know, I briefly talked about self-care and how we should not make it such a big priority in our lives. But hey, if, if it's about truly seeking God, seeking the good of others, doing it to the glory of God, then go nuts. And I, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. If it is for the good of others and to the glory of God. And my guess would be that as we take these guiding principles seriously in evaluating the use of our Christian liberties, right? as we, as we see our acts, our rights, and our decisions in binary terms, that it is either glorifying God or it is a reproach to God or it is unglorifying God, I believe this will drastically affect how we carry ourselves and make decisions, whether that's out in public or in private. And all that we do, whether we eat or drink, even in our attempts to become people pleasers, we must do it all to the glory of God. So we're in our final stretch now, or landing the plane, whatever other cliche that the pastors use. 
in the last verse of this portion of the letter, so it's actually in, you know, as Pastor Charles read, it's chapter 11, verse 1. Paul writes, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Well, first we recognize that Paul here is urging his believers to imitate himself, which is in contrast to what he said, as we saw last week, when he said, look at the examples of the Israelites, don't do what they are doing. You know, you can look at them as an example to not follow. Now, in, in many of Paul's letters, he says, and he encourages the, the, the fellow believers to be imitators of him. But here in chapter 11, verse 1, is the only place where he immediately adds, as I am of Christ. So here, no one could deny that Paul himself was a worthy example to follow. No one would say that. That's why so many people that were born and raised in the church are named Paul, I would imagine. But Paul wants to be very clear that no one should be imitators of him because of anything that he did, but because and only because he is an imitator of Christ. And a quick side note, I think it's something that we should ask ourselves too. Are we worthy of being imitators of Christ? Jesus is our perfect example. He's the gold standard and the only standard we must follow. He's the one and only perfect people pleaser to the glory of God. He came down to earth giving up all of his rights, all of his privileges for our sake. And he didn't just give up his rights. He didn't just give up his, his, his freedom, his, his throne. He laid down his life. He gave up his life for the benefit of others, for the benefit of you and me. He became all things to all people, to every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And he did nothing selfish. But in humility, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Became obedient to the point of death for the advantage of many, that many may be saved. Not only did he give up his, oh, not only did he live his life to the fullest, to the glory of God, he himself is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. And it is this Jesus that while we were yet sinners, while we were dead wrong, and there is nothing about us that was right, this Jesus gave up all of his rights, lived a blameless life of not only doing lived a blameless life of only doing what was right. So that through him, those of us who truly put our faith and trust in him would be made right with God. And as we close, you know, you may be thinking at this point, you know, you've bought into our main idea of being people pleasers to the glory of God and how there's the potential of clearing up some of the gray areas in our lives. But you may still say at the end of the day, the Bible doesn't give us clarity to all of the gray areas. 
And to that, I would say you're absolutely right. There are still many gray areas in our lives. And the Bible doesn't seem to give us the exact answers to the questions or maybe doesn't give us the answers that we're seeking. But as I mentioned in our introduction, I think it's important that we consider, at the very least, the possibility of us not asking the right questions when it comes to our Christian liberties. The ultimate question is not what we have the right to do or not to do. It is not how far we can push the limits to our boundaries. The question is who gave us the right to do what we do and how far did that person go to break all the boundaries for us so that we may be right in him. When our focus is on seeking the good of others over our own to be helpful, to build up, ultimately that many people may be saved all to the glory of God, when this is how we go about exercising our Christian liberties, we can be truly free. We can be truly free because we are not concerned with whether or not we made the right decision. God knows we're not going to get them all right. He knows actually that we're going to get a lot of it wrong, most of it wrong. And he didn't save us because he thought we were going to be perfect. But he saved us because he loved us. And he was going to make us right with him through the blood of his son, who exemplified the perfect and selfless love. Sure, we'll see later in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. And it does not what? Insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. And it is this Jesus who calls us to give up, to lay down all of our rights, all of our liberties, our pleasures, our preferences, all of it, all of those things that we think we can actually falsely claim or authorize, but to freely follow him and to be imitators of him. You know, what's, what was really interesting about that article, the, the 10 signs of, of being a, possibly being a people pleaser, what really stood out to me were two things. One was the subtitle, and the other was the word of encouragement at the end. And verbatim, this was the subtitle. You'll never reach your goals if you're trying to be all things to all people. And the article ended like this. If you're struggling to let go of these habits, seek help. A therapist can help you build the mental strength you need to create the kind of life you want to live. You will never reach your goals if you're trying to be all things to all people. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus calls us to be all things to all people to become people pleasers. And as we genuinely seek the good and the advantage of others that they may be saved to the glory of God, no matter how successful, well-liked, widely accepted we may be according to the world, we can be confident that our goals, our goals to glorify God will be met and there's no reaching to do because God is very much so concerned with receiving all the glory, however pretty that may look to our eyes, God is going to get the glory. And yes, we may need to seek help. 
I'm 100% a proponent of therapy. But may we not lose sight of the fact that we have the perfect helper that abides in us, who will guide us as we grow in our knowledge of God and in our intimacy with Him, as we study and meditate on His Word, as we pray and ask that, we, that He show us the way to be all things to all people. Before we are quick to read the books, listen to the sermons, attend the conferences, talk to the right people, may we be quicker to get down to our knees and ask the Holy Spirit to go before us and to guide our ways to navigate through the gray areas of our lives. Brothers and sisters, may we be the people pleasers to the glory of God. Let's pray. God, it's sometimes hard to, actually not sometimes, all the time, it's hard to grasp what it means to glorify you. What, what is your glory, God? You know that it, it is a, there's a heavy weight to it, right? that there is a radiance to it. But I, don't, I don't know what, what your glory truly is. Only that in its perfect form, it was shown to us through your Son, and God, it's so hard not to do things for ourselves. I confess, Lord, that I have done many things for my wife, my children, for my friends, for myself. A lot of good things, even sacrificial things. But in my sick, twisted mind and heart, I have done so many things for myself, not for the good, not the benefit, not the advantage of others, not for their spiritual growth, and ultimately not that they may be saved to your glory. God, help us. Help me. Help me, God, that I may be a people pleaser to your glory, that I may do all things, whether I eat or drink, Whatever it is that I do, the most precious things of life to the most mundane things of life, all things may I do it to your glory. Because you are deserving of all the glory. And even if we didn't give to you, you're going to take it anyway. Because you are all about your namesake and your glory. And thank you. Thank you that you use us that it was according to your plan for us to bring you glory. Continue to use us, convict our hearts, challenge us, stretch us, that we may be imitators of you. We love you, Lord, but your love for us is so much greater, so much greater, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.